Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good, good. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we are continuing through our series. We've been working through the Bible reading plan uh, from uh, that we kind of adopted from McLean Bible Church, and so we're going to finish that out uh, throughout the year. And so this week we were continuing in the Book of Acts. So if you've been following along with that Bible reading plan, then uh, you were in the Book of Acts this week, uh, chapters seven to sixteen. Uh, and this morning, the passage we're, that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be introduced to a man named Philip. And Philip was one of the original seven deacons. It was ordained in Acts chapter 6 uh, after the church realized that they needed some men who were filled with the Spirit who could help uh, administrate uh, the, uh, the various things in the church. And so Philip was one of those men chosen and uh, after persecution arose, uh, if you went and read on in chapter 7, you saw that uh, Stephen uh, was stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And after that, it says a great persecution arose and that the believers were scattered all across uh, the region. And Philip made his way down to Samaria, but they didn't go scatter to hide. They went, they went preaching the gospel uh, as they scattered. And so Philip found himself in Samaria and Basically, what happened is revival broke out. Philip started preaching the gospel, and people started come, turning to the Lord in droves. They started seeing Samaritans, just numerous Samaritans, repenting of their sin, believing in the gospel, being baptized. There was this incredible revival taking place, but then God did something surprising. He told Philip to leave. Like right in the middle of this amazing revival, and right in the middle of all this cool stuff happening, God tells Philip, hey, Philip, I want you to go. And, and where does he tell him to go? He says, I want you to go to the desert. Of all places, he tells him to go to the desert. So let's read. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to see what's up with, the, with that this morning. Why did God tell Philip to go to the desert? Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. I'm going to be in the English Standard Version, the ESV. The words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. This is the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. 
And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between the division of bone and marrow. God, um, I thank you that, uh, that the, the pressure is not on me to change anybody's heart this morning. It's only you that can change anybody's heart. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us through your word this morning, that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears today, that we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would teach us how to be led by the Spirit as we talk about that this morning. Lord, I pray that you would awaken sleepy Christians out of their slumber I pray that you would raise spiritually dead people from the dead. I pray that you would encourage the downcast and comfort those who are suffering, Holy Spirit. God, you know what we need. You know what's going on in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would do a new thing in our hearts today. Lord, please, I pray that you would meet with us and that we wouldn't walk out of the doors the same person that we were when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So here's what I want you to see in this passage that we just read. By the way, there are sermon notes on your chairs. I always forget to mention that. There's sermon notes on your chairs. You probably saw that already. You probably already knew that. I didn't have to say it, but I'm going to say it anyways. So you can follow along on the outline with those sermon notes. But here's what I want you to see. This passage presents a crystal clear picture of God's sovereignty working in concert with human responsibility without any contradiction. This passage presents a crystal clear picture of God's sovereignty working in concert with human responsibility without any contradiction. It it matters that the Holy Spirit is sovereignly orchestrating all of this because apart from Him, we can do nothing. It's, it's very clear in this passage that the Holy Spirit was orchestrating this entire chain of events. It's kind of hard to miss that. Philip is not the lead actor in this play. The Holy Spirit is. In fact, that's the case for the entire book of Acts. It's the, it's the case for the entire Bible. It's the case for the church today. The book of Acts' full title is The Acts of the Apostles, but many people have pointed out that it should probably more, it could be more accurately called uh, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a few examples here to show you that I'm not making this up, that the Holy Spirit really is driving everything and in charge. Acts 13, verse 2 says this, says that uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit, it was his idea to send out the first missionaries from Antioch. Not our idea, not man's idea, it was the Holy Spirit's idea. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. 
It says, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying uh, the word of the Lord. And, and check this out. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the Holy Spirit was in charge of who's going to believe as well. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 8. This is the Macedonian call. Paul and his team, are, they're on their second missionary journey, and they're, they're trying to figure out where to go next. It says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Do you see that? Who's in charge? The Holy Spirit is in charge. And then check out verse 7. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but what? The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And then lastly, Acts 16, verse 14. It's the last example I'll give. One who heard us, Paul's preaching the gospel at the riverside, and he says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm being redundant because I find myself talking so often about the sovereignty of God in my sermons, but I was reminded this week that the reason that I do that is because the Bible always talks about the sovereignty of God. It permeates every single page of this book. We can't avoid it if we're going to preach the text faithfully, if we're going to read it faithfully. The Holy Spirit is sovereign over evangelism and salvation. But first of all, this should humble us. We can do nothing for the kingdom of God without Him. You cannot do anything for God. You can only do something with God. In our flesh, we have no power. John chapter 6, Jesus says, The flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. So every good thing that we do, spiritually, everything good thing that we do that matters in the kingdom of God is because it is Christ in us. That's what Paul meant in that verse that we read aloud earlier, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Why? Because I can do nothing. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. How does Christ live within us? It's the Spirit of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers. It's only Christ who can do anything in and through me. So if you do not learn how to be led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will be an impotent Christian. You know what impotent means? It means powerless. You'll be an impotent Christian. America does not need more impotent Christians. We've got plenty. America needs churches and Christians that are alive, filled with the Spirit of the omnipotent God. Not only should God's sovereignty over salvation humble us, it should encourage us. This means that the Holy Spirit is already at work all around us. God is actively at work inviting us to join in on that work. And the responsibility to convert people is not on us. It's not. The Spirit of God is the one that changes somebody's heart. Our job is to listen to God and obey Him so that we can be His vessels. So in light of all this, we desperately need to learn how to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. God has chosen, in His wisdom, to work through His people, the church, as His instruments to take the gospel to the nations. 
So God's sovereignty over evangelism does not negate human responsibility. In this passage that we just read, Philip gives us an example of what it looks like to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. My desire for myself and for each one of you is that we would be a people who are filled with and led by the Spirit. So we're going to walk through this passage and kind of look at at two different things. We're going to see what the Holy Spirit did, and we're going to see how Philip responded to the activity of the Holy Spirit around him, all right? So the Holy Spirit, you're going to, it's kind of like, like we're going to follow Philip throughout this, but I want you to see that the, the leading and the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is like a tent that is spread over this entire passage. He is orchestrating all of it. So if you're looking in your outline, you're following along, the first major point here is that God originated the meeting. God originated the meeting. So at the very outset, we see that it was not Philip who originated this encounter with the eunuch. This was not his idea. Philip was having a good old time in Samaria just watching revival break out. I would love to see revival break out in D.C. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in Philip's shoes. You have gone to a place where there were no Christians, and all of a sudden there are tons of people coming to Jesus. People are getting baptized. People are flocking to come and hear you preach the gospel. And then God just tells you to leave. And where, where, Lord? To the desert. Just... Why? Just go. I mean, would you do it? I mean, that'd be kind of tough, wouldn't it? It's, so that, it's obvious that this wasn't Philip's idea because it didn't make any sense. And there's a couple of things to learn from Philip here. First, Philip was yielding. He was yielding to the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe you've heard it uh, said before, you've got to put your yes on the table, Right? Philip had his yes on the table. What that means is that his answer to to wherever God would lead him was yes before he even knew what the command was. Doesn't matter what the command is. Doesn't matter what, what, if I agree with it, if I understand it, if I can see the end, my answer is yes, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Imagine what that would have been like for Philip. You know, more often than not, God's call isn't going to make much sense to us. You see that over and over again throughout the Bible. I thought about uh, the story of Gideon. Anybody know Gideon? Book of Judges, Judges chapter 6 and 7. Gideon is an awesome story. If you haven't read it, go read Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 this week. But uh, just to kind of give you a, a, a summary of what happens, at least part of the story, God called Gideon to lead Israel against the Midianites who were oppressing uh, the people of Israel. And at one point, uh, God called Gideon to go up uh, at, with an army against them, and Gideon had an army of 32,000 people. So Gideon's feeling pretty good. And then God came to Gideon the night before the battle and said, Hey, uh, Gideon. I need you to cut down your forces. You got too many guys. Gideon was like, come again? You have too many guys. I need you to send some of them home. So Gideon sends 22,000 of them home. And there's 10,000 left. God goes, yeah, that's still too many. I need you to send a lot more of them home. So basically the army gets whittled down to 300 people. And God, then God says, okay, now you're good to go. Now you can attack them. But what happens? Well, they attack them and God gives them the victory. Why, why on earth would God do that? Because it's not by chariots and horses that God's people are victorious, but by the name of the Lord our God. And God wants us to know it. One of our values at Pillar DC is childlike faith. See our values up there. The Bible, childlike faith, bold evangelism, selfless service, intentional discipleship, the Great Commission. Those are things that that we want to be a part of the culture. Those are things that we live by. They're things that matter to us. It's the filter through which we make every decision. Childlike faith is one of those. 
That means trusting God even when you don't understand. Isaiah 55, 9, God says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. God is going to take you out of your comfort zone because that's what walking by faith is. It's going to feel a little bit like this. Have you guys seen this meme right here before? (laughs) It's going to feel a little bit like that. In fact, if it doesn't feel a little bit like that when you're following Jesus, you're probably not following Jesus. It's going to feel a little bit like that. Sometimes God's going to, the ride's going to get a little bit uncomfortable and you're going to have to cling to Him. Don't just obey God when it makes sense. Obey Him no matter what. It's easy to see how this applies to evangelism. It may not make sense to share the gospel with your coworkers. You could be ostracized. You may not get that promotion. There are all sorts of fears, all sorts of things that might happen, but that's not what matters. What matters is what God said. And what did God say? Go and make disciples. Will you trust God or will you trust your own eyes? Will you trust His wisdom or will you trust your own wisdom? It's when we step out in faith trusting God that we experience God. And we wonder, why, why don't I experience God more? Why don't I experience God working in my life in the way I see here? It's because we're not stepping out in faith. Not only was Philip yielding, Philip was listening. It's important. You can't yield if you don't listen to what God is saying. Acts chapter 6, verse 3 uh, is when we're first introduced to Philip, and we learn that along with the other six deacons, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, is what Acts chapter 6 says. Philip heard the Holy Spirit's voice so clearly because he walked by the Spirit. Have you ever wondered why we don't see stuff happen like it did in the book of Acts very often? Like, have you ever like sat back and thought about that? I do. Sometimes I'll think about it. You know, at least one of the reasons that believers aren't seeing stuff happen today like it did in the book of Acts is because they aren't doing what the believers did in the book of Acts. Henry Blackaby, he's a Canadian pastor and author. He, he wrote a study called Experiencing God. Probably some of you in this room have been through it. He said, he said once, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to equip you for what you're not going to do. And we're not going to do what we didn't hear God tell us to do. I'm convinced that this is the reason I have so often missed what God wants to do in and through me. And I'm convinced it's the reason the church appears so impotent. In America, at least. When we aren't abiding or listening to Christ, we miss out on His instruction. And God primarily gives us His instruction in the Bible, in His Word. His Word is living and active. If we don't know God's Word, if we're not in God's Word, we will have no direction. We will be aimless and fruitless disciples. But sometimes God specifically instructs us through prayer or through another believer speaking to us or through a dream or through, or through a strong impression. Now, let me caution you, these things should always be held to the light of God's Word because God is never, ever going to say something to you that contradicts His Word. If God tells you, if you think God told you that you need to go and buy your own private jet, I can promise you that that's not what God said. That wasn't God. Somebody told it to you, but it wasn't God. It was a spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I'm not going to get off on a tangent on that. But here's the deal. We should also 
not make the mistake of overcorrecting and thinking that God never speaks in those ways. We should not make the mistake of thinking that, no, God never speaks through other believers. Prophecy has ceased. It just doesn't happen anymore. Or God's not going to speak through a dream anymore. He does sometimes do that. He did it right here with Philip in Acts chapter 8. One of the times that this happened in my my life so clearly, uh, it was... um, couple years after I'd become a Christian and I was, um, I, I just started exploring the call to church planting. I knew God was calling me to do that. And I was feeling called to Toronto where Jen and I would eventually uh, move. And I remember distinctly though, realizing that as I started doing, I did like a, a pre-assessment. And one of the things I realized is that uh, I wasn't really sharing the gospel with anybody outside of a church setting. Like I was, you know, standing up there and I was preaching boldly on Sunday mornings and stuff. But outside of church, I wasn't really sharing the gospel. And I kind of realized that if I'm not sharing the gospel in Texas, what makes me think I'm going to do it in Toronto? Like what makes me think I'm going to be able to plant a church up there? And so I began to pray and I began to intentionally look for opportunities. And uh, I I ended up uh, building a relationship with a guy named Saul of all names. His name was Saul at the gym. And Saul and I started talking. We had, I, I, you know, I offered to pray with him one day. We started talking about working out. We had a relationship going. And I'd, I'd had some gospel conversations with him. And then um, I remember one day very clearly I was in my house. I, I, was, I was still a bachelor at the time. I was alone. I lived alone. And I was praying for him. And I got one of the strongest senses that I've ever gotten that God just very clearly spoke to me right there and said, you need to pick up the phone right now, go meet with him and call him to repent and believe. Like, like strongly urge him right now to place his faith and trust in me. And at first I kind of, you know, shook it off. I was like, well, you know, that seems silly. And, and I mean, I'm telling you guys, the Holy Spirit would not let it go. And I, and I, it was like he drove me to that phone. I picked it up. I said, I need to meet with you right now. And I met with him that afternoon. I, I just laid the gospel out for him. And I said, you need to repent and believe. And guess what happened? Right there on the spot, he repented and believed. Amen. He turned from his sin. He gave his life to Christ. And he began to follow Jesus. Successful missions and evangelism starts on our knees, church. That's why we've got prayer meetings two times a month. That's why we're prioritizing it on our calendar. God's people crying out to Him in prayer is the way that every single revival has ever started. The disciples were praying and fasting when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. They were praying and fasting in Acts chapter 13 when the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Let me encourage you to come to the prayer meeting that we're having on Wednesday night. Let me encourage you to come and gather together as the body of Christ so that we can call out to God together to save people in our city, to change us. But furthermore, let me encourage you to start listening and yielding to the Spirit like Philip. Do whatever it takes to remove the noise in your life that's keeping you from listening. God originated the meeting. God also orchestrated the details. God orchestrated the details. That's the next major point on your outline. He orchestrated the details of this encounter, every single one. In those days, it was customary for people to read aloud. People didn't read silently. They read when they sat down to read, they would read out loud. So when Philip got close to the chariot, he heard the eunuch reading the scroll of Isaiah out loud. And the eunuch was probably a convert to Judaism 
who had traveled about 500 miles to Jerusalem and obtained a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, probably due to his status as a, a royal official in the court of uh, the queen of Ethiopia. But he was also a eunuch serving the queen, which meant basically that he had been emasculated. And as a eunuch, he would not have been allowed into the inner part of the temple in Jerusalem. He would have been considered by the Jewish officials to be unclean and unworthy to come that close to God's presence, basically. That's what makes God's orchestration of him reading this specific passage even more amazing. Look at, look at verse 32 and 33 of our text again. Look at the passage that the eunuch is reading. He, he, he reads, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Does anyone know where that passage is found in the Old Testament? Isaiah 53. Anybody know who Isaiah 53 is talking about? Jesus. Try it. Philip himself could not have picked a more perfect passage. It's the passage that prophesied the suffering of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's, let's, look, let's actually look at Isaiah 53. Look at the verse that came before it. This is what he would have been reading. In verse 6, it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the eunuch read this passage and he asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? I want to draw your attention to something in this passage that makes it even more amazing that God used this one. In in Isaiah 53 verse 8, it says about the suffering servant, about the Messiah, it says, who can describe his generation? What that, what that means, the New Living Translation translates it, no one cared that he died without descendants. So what Isaiah 53, 8 is saying is that the, the Messiah, the one who is to come, he, his life will be cut short. His, descend, his, his line will be cut off before he's able to have children. He will not have progeny. So the one the eunuch was reading about could share in his sorrow of having no descendants. Who was this one, the eunuch wondered. I have to think that the eunuch likely read three chapters later. In Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. Listen to Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. He would have read this, and this probably would have been one of his favorite passages. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Jesus, the very Son of God, died without descendants so that the childless could have an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
Acts 8.35 says, beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip told him the good news that Jesus Christ died for unworthy sinners that aren't allowed into the innermost parts of the temple like us. And then He rose from the dead so that we could be brought near to God. No longer is the eunuch kept outside the inner walls of God's house. God says right there, Isaiah 56.5, look what He says. He says, He will give eunuchs in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. He says, eunuchs, you're going to come right on the inside. You're not going to be kept away from the outer, uh, from the inner part of the temple anymore. You get to come inside, within my walls, in my presence. The gospel says those who were once unclean and unworthy are now able to come right into the presence of God within His walls, and that includes you today. That invitation is to every single person in this room. You must simply repent of your sin. Believe the Gospel and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will be forgiven and made right with God. Don't miss this, church. Whatever your sorrow, Jesus has shared it. And whatever is broken, the Gospel will restore it. Whatever is broken. The Gospel is good news for every single person in this room. Joni Erickson Tata, I don't know if you know who she is, but uh, she was paralyzed as a young person and uh, she's been wheelchair bound her entire life and she's written some of the greatest uh, things out there on suffering as a believer. She said this, she said, Jesus went without comfort so that you might have it. He postponed joy so that you might share in it. He willingly chose isolation so that you might never be alone in your hurt and sorrow. He had no real fellowship so that fellowship might be yours this moment. Church, this isn't talking about a man. This is talking about God in the flesh who did this for us. God Himself went without so that we could have. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that by His poverty we might become rich. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that through His poverty you might become rich. That's God that did that. I can't move on without briefly addressing this just because it it clearly comes up in this passage. The Gospel is good news for the childless. Sits close to home. My wife and I have walked through infertility since we've been married. And I know there's others in this room that have as well. God may grant children in this life, or He may not. But He has guaranteed us a name and a monument better than sons and daughters. Paul says in Romans 8.18, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The reason we don't have to be attached to this world as Christians The reason we don't have to be absolutely devastated when we find out that we're infertile or when the cancer diagnosis comes or when the house gets foreclosed on is because our treasure is in heaven. Our treasure is Jesus. That's why the eunuch went his way rejoicing. He found treasure that far outweighed what he was stewarding for the queen of Ethiopia. 
that far outweighed the disappointment of not having descendants. It's really amazing how God orchestrated every single part of this. Do you see the loving kindness and care of the Lord? That He would arrange all of this for one person? Like, like out of all the passages of Scripture that He could have Him reading right there. And, and the fact that he would bring one of the most prolific evangelists in the early church, that he would take him away from a revival and bring him in the desert, into the desert for one man. God leaves the 99 to come after the one. He will not let his sheep get away. If he has chosen you, he will get you. Amen. He will come for you. And let's not forget, before we move on to the last point, that God brought this good news through the lips of Philip. Philip engaged the eunuch in conversation. He engaged the eunuch in conversation. This took some guts. He ran up to this royal official's chariot and then said, do you understand what you're reading? It's kind of a, possibly a rude way to introduce yourself to somebody, but that's what Philip did. Too often, though, guys, we miss out on the opportunity to preach the hope of the gospel to someone because we're too afraid to engage them in a conversation in the first place. It's so easy to make excuses for why we shouldn't start a gospel conversation, isn't it? He's a rich Ethiopian official. He's not going to want the gospel. He's not going to want it. Uh, That person looks like they're strung out on drugs. They're not going to even be able to understand what I'm saying. Or that person used to go to church. I don't think they're interested in the gospel. They're not going to want to hear it. Is there someone in your life who you're writing off? It's not up to us to decide who will hear us out or not. God isn't asking us to shoot a high percentage in evangelism. The only way, you know, the only way you can fail in evangelism is if you don't do it. That's the only way we can fail. God is asking us to sow the seed. He's going to do the rest. Engage somebody this week. After Philip engaged, he explained the gospel. Philip explained the gospel. Verse 35, it says, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We need to know the Scriptures and we need to know the Gospel, church. One step I want to encourage everyone to take is to become more prepared by signing up for and coming to the Gospel Conversation Training this Saturday from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's free. We're going to give you lunch and we're going to equip you with tools so that you will be able to obey the Word of God so that you can do this, so you can start experiencing stuff like Philip experienced right here. We want to get you in the Great Commission game. So we want to equip you with what you need. Please, if just clear your calendar, do whatever you've got to do, come and get equipped this Saturday. Because guys, th- this is the only way we're going to reach our city. We're not going to reach our city by putting out ads and putting out signs and inviting people to come in here. We've got to go out there. You guys are the, 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 the ministers. It's my job, it's Thomas's job, it's Orion's job to equip you. <laughs> to do the work of ministry, not to do it for you. And so we want to equip you. So please come on Saturday. By the way, don't underestimate the power of reading the Bible with somebody. Many of you have friends and coworkers that don't know Jesus. In fact, all of you probably have somebody, neighbors, friends, coworkers that don't know Jesus. One of the best ways to introduce them to Jesus is by simply asking them if they'd be interested in reading the Bible with you. I'm don't, Don't write them off before you ask. Don't assume they're going to say no. You have no idea what God's doing in their heart. You have no idea what's going on in their life. 
just start the conversation by saying, hey, you know, I know I probably should have talked to you about this sooner, but, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I just, I believe that prayer is powerful and that God hears our prayers. Is there any way I can pray for you? Do that with a coworker. Do that with a neighbor. Hey, I was just wondering, have you ever been curious about reading the Bible? Would you ever like to read the Bible with me sometime? What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to say no? Okay. Jesus was rejected plenty of times, and he told us we're going to be rejected. But, you know, most likely I've found, like, they're not going to, like, hate you and go, oh, I don't ever want to be your friend again. I've never, literally never even had that happen to me before. In fact, what they're probably going to do is even if they're not interested, they'll probably be appreciative because they're going to tell that you actually care about them and love them because you want to share what's most important to you with them. Just like Philip sat with the eunuch and guided him through Isaiah 53, you can sit with someone you know and guide them through Scripture. So think about somebody that doesn't know Jesus that you could ask to do that. All right, God originated the meaning, He orchestrated the details, and lastly, He ordained the outcome. God ordained the outcome. Look at verses 36 and 38. It says, As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. It's only fitting, isn't it, that they would just so happen to come across a pool of water in the desert. (laughs) They're in the desert. Okay, they just happened to roll up on some water. Right as Philip finished proclaiming the gospel to the eunuch. Guys, from start to finish, the Holy Spirit had His hand in every single aspect of this encounter. And God did it through the simple trust and obedience of a faithful disciple. And what was the result? The eunuch believed. He believed the good news that was shared with him. You know, one of the amazing things about the story is how easy this was for Philip. Philip didn't do any work. Heck, he didn't even have to walk home. It just it says he found himself in Azotus. Like God just teleported him to the next place, apparently. Like, Philip didn't do anything. The Holy Spirit was like carrying him along the entire time. He spoke through the mouth of Philip. He opened the, ear, the ears of the eunuch. He transformed the heart of the eunuch. Salvation is a miracle that can only be wrought by God. Immediately after believing, the eunuch was baptized. The eunuch was baptized. It's only natural to want to be baptized when you have, when you have heard and understood the gospel. The eunuch didn't need convincing. He was ready to die to self and to live to Christ. I've, I've been asked many times, do I have to be baptized to be saved? The answer is no. You must repent and believe the gospel to be saved. But the better question is, Why would you not want to be baptized if you are saved? Believer's baptism means that you are identifying yourself with Jesus. Water baptism as a profession of faith is a clear command of Jesus in Scripture. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, then let the example of the eunuch here encourage you to do so. Maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, though. Maybe you'd say, Jared, I don't know if I'm qualified for baptism. I don't don't feel like I'm clean. 
I haven't proven myself yet. Then hear the words of the eunuch. What prevents me from being baptized? The answer every single time is nothing. The only thing between you and baptism is to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. You can do that now. That's the only requirement to come to Christ. It's the only requirement to start this new relationship with God. And that's what baptism signifies. It's the beginning of your walk with Christ. I am dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives within me because I've been buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And I am not ashamed to tell people. I am publicly marking myself as a disciple of Jesus. Church, if you haven't done that, do it. If you haven't done that, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Thomas. Come and talk to Orion after the service. We'd love to talk to you with you about scheduling your baptism so that we can make that happen. And it's only appropriate that this entire encounter ends by the Spirit carrying Philip away. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And uh, Irenaeus, who was an early church father in the second century, uh, wrote that it was this Ethiopian eunuch who was responsible for the gospel being brought to the continent of Africa. We don't know for sure, for sure, if that was actually the case, but that's what Irenaeus said. And Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was the disciple of John, like the John, the disciple John that followed Jesus around. So, so if anybody knew, I feel like Irenaeus probably had an inside track. So the Ethiopian eunuch took the gospel to the continent of Africa, all because Philip listened to and obeyed the leading of the Holy Spirit. As we close, let me ask you, what needs to change for you to listen to and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit? The same Holy Spirit that dwelt in Philip dwells in you if you're a Christian. And God still operates the same way in southwest D.C. that he did in Gaza in the first century. There are Ethiopian eunuchs all around us in this city waiting for Phillips to come and bring the gospel to them. We need spirit-led Jesus followers who will follow the Holy Spirit's leading. We need Christians who expect God to do things like this today who believe that God is actively at work all around us in this city. Because He is. Like He actually is. And we need to join Him on that work. And we do that by being led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, As we transition, I'm going to ask the the worship team to come up. And this morning, we're going to respond to the message uh, by taking the Lord's Supper uh, together. So uh, I'm going to uh, pray. And then we're going to read a passage um, about the Lord's Supper from Luke chapter 22. And um, just want to to preface this with uh, just to to make sure you know that the Lord's Supper is a celebration uh, for Christians. It's a celebration for God's people. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, uh, what we're doing is we're saying that uh, we are partaking in Jesus's uh, death on the cross for us. So by taking the elements, by eating the bread and drinking the juice, we are saying that we believe that Jesus's body was broken for us. We believe that Jesus's blood was spilled for us. Luke chapter 22, uh, I'm going to read this passage. 
Jesus took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is that we're united with Christ. That we've placed our faith in Him, and that means that the death that He died on the cross was our judgment for sin. That means our judgment day already happened. Jesus took the punishment for us in our place. It also means that we're united with each other, because as a, as a body of believers, as Christians, we are coming together, and we are take, we're partaking of the Lord's Supper together. It shows that we are united together as one body under Jesus Christ, who is the head. That's why uh, the Lord's Supper is uh, only for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, then what I'd ask you to do this morning is uh, just refrain from going back there and taking uh, the bread and the juice. But what I would encourage you to do instead this morning is in your seat, I would encourage you to give your life to Jesus Christ today. I'd encourage you to, to, to pray right there in your seat. Confess your sins to God. Acknowledge that you've fallen short. And ask Jesus to come and to change your heart, to give you a new heart. He died for you on the cross. And He rose from the dead so that you could have new life. You can have that today. This offer is for you. The gospel, like I said earlier, is good news for everyone. And that includes you. So, so you can do that today. So that you can begin to partake in this fellowship meal with us moving forward. We would love for you to do that. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm just going to ask you guys to go back there. You'll see there are two tables in the back. And what I want you to do is just take the bread and take the juice, bring it back to your seat, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, okay? God, uh, thank you so much for your word. Jesus, we thank you for, for taking our iniquity on yourself. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you for that good news. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, that you uh, empower us by your spirit to be able to do the things that you've called us to do, to be able to obey you, to, to be on mission. God, I pray that you would help us to be people who are led by the spirit, who walk by the spirit, who abide in you, God. And I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you yet. I pray that today would be the day of salvation that just like you did with the eunuch, you would open up their eyes, that they would see, they'd say, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from coming to Jesus? I pray that they would see that nothing prevents them from coming to you this morning. They can come freely. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.